Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Doing this morning, I was thinking about the well-watered plains of Jordan when I was looking at all the fields. I certainly got a, a good shower last night. At the same time, there's many a place in the world to be glad of the rain, wouldn't it? I was speaking to a good friend this week uh, in Romania. His name is George. I've known George and I for 30-odd years. George has two sons, Christy and Samuel, and they all live in the same house. And as I was talking to them on Zoom, now George is on his fifth gypsy church. They call them gypsies, not travelers in Romania. And so we were helping them get the toilet block in before the winter. We were negotiating, getting all that sorted out and getting materials and so on. And George and his sons have been doing a lot of the work themselves with the hands. But I thought to myself, he's living in the same house with his two sons and their wives and their grandchildren. That's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? You know. But it set me thinking. It set me thinking about brothers in the Bible. And I want to just share with you this morning from the Bible, from Genesis chapter 4 to begin with. And we're going to look at how that people who grew up in the very same family with the very same parents, in the very same social conditions, can turn out to be totally different. You know, one of my daughters has twins, and apart from the fact they're a boy and a girl, but boy, character-wise, are they different. And we see that, don't, don't we? And when you begin to read the Bible in the book of Genesis, you don't read for very long do you come to families. You know, in fact, the end of the Genesis is all about a big family, a really big family, and what happened to them. And that's helpful to you and me to understand our families. You know, why our children do the things they do? Why we did the things we do? We can bring a lot of joy to our parents. We can bring a lot of heartbreak to them. And we see that right in the very first book of the Bible. And I want to encourage all of us to Read the whole Bible, I'm sure you do, and, and, and I've been doing it for years in some of, some of your cases. But don't give up. When you start reading Genesis and you come up against things that seem to be crazy, when you compare them with what you're being taught at school or what you're hearing about in television or what you're hearing about the world and the universe and science and so on, and, and you might, in fact, you will very quickly come across things that will shock you and surprise you, and you'll probably go, th- you, you'll probably say to yourself, uh, Wow, that, 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 you know, that, that, that's a bit unusual, to say the least. But I think when you read Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, and you come across things that shock you, or things that you'll say, that's a bit hard, or that's a bit unusual, don't stop reading. Because Genesis is a bit like wedging the door open for the whole Bible. Keep reading on. I remember a friend of mine who was in the UVF and he got saved and he started reading the Bible and I happened to be in Malaysia with a friend at this time at a conference and it was three o'clock in the morning when my phone rang and Marty said to me, he says, I have one question for you. I said, Marty, it's three in the morning, you've woke me up. You know, he says, I know, but I, I can't wait till tomorrow. Where did Cain get his wife? And I said, well, keep reading. Keep reading. The answer is the next chapter. Adam and Eve had lots of other children. And you'll come across things like that. And this is one of those 
kind of chapters for me. When, when I read Genesis chapter 4, and I'm going to break in at verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now Adam had uh, relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother named Abel, and named him Abel. Now when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. Or he became a gardener, you could say, or a farmer, a vegetable farmer. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And you can see where one of my questions comes in. That was a bit hard, you know. They both worked hard and they were bringing the fruits of their labor. And, you know, why one and not the other? And we know from life's experience and later on in the book of Genesis, as when a father shows preferential treatment to one of their children, it causes havoc. You don't believe me? Read the story of Joseph. But God accepted Abel's offering. And Abel, but he didn't accept Cain and Cain's offering. This made Cain very angry, and he looked rejected. In other words, he looked like he was angry, and he looked like he was disappointed. And God said to, to Cain, why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You, you will be accepted if you do what is right. I want you to hold on to the wee expression. If you do what is right. It's key to understanding this passage. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. And I'll stop there. What happens next is a total disaster, a family disaster, where one brother actually kills the other. Cain, so angry, so jealous, or whatever, for whatever reason, he ends up killing his brother Abel. It's an interesting passage. And when I first read this, I can remember saying to myself, Lord, that's a bit harsh. You know, the guy's doing his best. But that forces you to delve into it, doesn't it? And one of the key things in this passage is, is the reaction of Cain. Cain's reaction is, is one of anger and dejection. He, he felt rejected by God because didn't, God didn't accept his presence. I can remember when I first got married and, and um, I bought Andrea some lovely chocolates and she didn't like them and I was quite annoyed and she actually said to me I thought these, this gift was for me what are you getting annoyed for the fact was she didn't like the dark chocolates I bought her she, she, she doesn't like dark chocolates so don't go buying Andrea any chocolates okay and, and then I bought her some perfume and I bought expensive perfume and I, and I gave it to her and, and I discovered she didn't like that either. She's quite picky, my wife, you know. And, and, and it was Chanel or something like that. Or some, somebody here calls it Channel. Um, but it was expensive, but she didn't like that. You see, when it comes to gifts, it's not about pleasing yourself, is it? It's about pleasing the person you're giving the gift to. And it's their call. 
And I, I, I began to ask myself questions about Cain. As Cain approached God, was he, was he coming to God the way many people come today with the, the idea that if God is good, if he's as good as they say he is, if he's a God of love, then he'll not reject anything. Have you heard that one before? Even children, you know, you know at times you kind of, you know, I've done this for you. What's the problem? I went through all this trouble. But then you have to realize it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the receiver. And am I really going to please them? Because if that's the point of the whole thing, then why do you get angry and annoyed if they're not pleased? Because it's their call. Some people think that God needs them for God to be happy. Otherwise, God will not be happy if he doesn't have me. <laughs> and if I get into that frame of mind, which I did at one stage, I haven't got it. I'm not worshipping the same God as the God who, who is worshipped by people of faith, who understand what we've heard a little bit about this morning, the fact that it's about Christ and faith and Calvary and, and sacrifice for our sins. We haven't really understood who God really is. And I, I've discovered over the years as I speak to people about God that we're not talking about the same God. They haven't read the Bible. They've maybe read a portion of the Bible. They've maybe, you know, opened up at Leviticus and, and, and it's all about a butcher shop and, and, and sacrifices and all kinds of things. And they get, or they've maybe opened at this passage and thought, God's unjust. He shows favoritism. And you would think that just by looking at this, this passage. God has his favorites too. But then you read through the Bible and you come to the later parts of the Bible where it says God doesn't have any favorites in the book of Romans. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. And that's why he sent Christ to Calvary. So that there would be a way, an open door for anybody who comes to him by faith. Uh, but if, if you just stick to this passage, you, you, you could be for, forgiven of it for maybe misinterpreting who God really is. And I asked myself a little bit about Cain. You know, what, what was it that Cain got angry about? What, what brought him in the end to, to, to kill his brother? Was he, in, was he annoyed that God wasn't pleased with his gift? But then it wasn't about you, Cain. What was going on in Cain's heart and in Cain's mind? Was Cain himself, as we read about in the Garden of Eden, in the previous chapters where Satan says to, to Adam and Eve, God doesn't want you to take of that, the fruit of that tree because then you will become like God. And was the problem here that Cain wanted to be the God of his own life, that he wanted to be running the show, that he wanted to... Or did Cain have any other, maybe, idols in his life, in his heart? that actually had replaced God and that he was coming to God with the wrong frame of mind and the wrong condition of heart. I suspect that something like that was going on because if you read the passage, God says to, Ab to, to Cain, if you refuse to do what is right, was God talking about the sacrifice? Was God talking about the, the gift? Is that what was wrong, Cain? You were offering the wrong gift. God doesn't actually say that. Although there is 
an interesting understanding of the difference between the two gifts, one being a live animal that was shed and the blood was shed. And we know that later on, the Lord Jesus Christ was called the Lamb of, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was it that Abel had understood something about sin and offering and sacrifice that Cain hadn't understood? Or was there more to it? Was it maybe that Cain was coming to God offering gifts and sacrifices on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week or the rest of his life, he was living a certain lifestyle that dishonored God. And God was saying to Cain, Cain, you don't get it. Your offering and your worship this morning is not, it's not worthy because of the life that you're living. If you do what is right, Cain, sin is in your life and you're letting it have its way and, and it's going to eat you alive and, and, and it's going to possess you, Cain, if you don't do something about this. One of the interesting things about this passage is, for me anyway, is this takes place outside the Garden of Eden. Did you notice that? Adam and Eve have already been chucked out of the garden and told never to come back. With, with a cherubim, an angel, and a fiery sword at the entrance of the garden so that they can't make their way back in. They were cast out on the east side and they couldn't get back in. And yet here we are outside the garden and God is still allowing men to have an interaction with him. He still has the way open for people to come to him in prayer and worship. Interesting, isn't it? In fact, the rest of the Old Testament is about God showing people that there is a way back. When he built the tabernacle, it's interesting that the door of the tabernacle was on the eastern side, just the very side that Adam and Eve had been thrown out of. The, the door of the tabernacle was on that side for them to make their way back in. But they could never enter the Holy of Holies until the true sacrifice for sin was made at Calvary. And it's interesting that in the tabernacle there was a veil that blocked anybody going into the holy place. And that was transferred to the temple when they built the temple. There was a veil that blocked anybody going into the very presence of God until Christ died at Calvary. And it says the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. Christ opened the door again for people to go into the very presence of God. But God still loved Adam and Eve, and he still loved Cain and Abel, and he still loves you and me, even though we're outside his presence, his, his, his intimate presence. And he sent his son into the world. Think about that. God came out of the garden after Adam and Eve to talk to Cain and Abel. That in itself is a miracle. He could have just said, forget it, they're a waste of time. I don't need any of them. They're the ones that need me. In fact, he almost did that a little later when we read about the story of Noah. But let's, let's get back to Cain and to Abel. What was going on in Cain's heart? Martin Luther, who we've heard about this morning, he said that all of the commandments, the, the nine last commandments are a result of breaking the first commandment. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And it asserts, the first commandment asserts that if you don't have God as number one, you will have other gods as number one. There's no room for a life with, there's no, with no gods in your life. 
The first commandment basically is saying, if you don't worship God, you'll be worshiping other gods. There will be other things in your life where you're looking to bring happiness, a sense of meaning to your life, and get your identity in. Here's what the Tim Keller says in his book, Idols of the Heart. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God. An idol is anything more fundamental than God for your happiness, the meaning of your life, and your identity. It is not so much wanting bad things as turning good things into ultimate things. Some people think that idols are all about, oh, they're naive, you know, it's all about worshiping money and it's all about worshiping, you know, these statues that they had in the Old Testament. But these statues represented human aspirations. They were a reflection of what was going on in the human heart. Today we're cleverer than that. We don't have wooden statues or gold statues or, or whatever, although some places still do. We have images on screens. We have priorities in our lives. We have all kinds of idols. And basically what Luther was saying and what Tim Keller saying, and I believe what was going on in Cain's life was other things had taken priority over God and his life. And God was warning Cain to say, Cain, this will destroy you. Paul, when he writes to Christians in Rome, he talks about the flesh and the spirit. And he's basically talking about your heart and your mind. When he talks about the flesh, he's talking about your heart and your mind. And what's going on in your heart is what gives you your happiness and your your sense of purpose and your identity. So it's really, really important then to, to look at ourselves and say, what is it that's taken up all my thoughts and my passion? And what's the driver of my life? What gets me motivated? What pushes my emotions? In Cain's case, God said, no no thanks, Cain. And Cain lost it. And one of the indicators in all of our lives that there might be idols in our lives is when we have an inordinate reaction to something. Whenever we have an over-the-top reaction to something, it's a warning for ourselves to say, why am I getting so upset about this? Has that never happened to you? What, What is it that's happened here? That's, that's, that's making me so upset about this. Here are some of the things that Tim Keller talks about. He talks about near idols and far idols in our lives. I'll, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But the, the, the idols that are near to us, and I'm not talking about statues and things like that. I'm talking about things that are in our hearts and in our minds. Work can become an idol. Have you noticed that, wives? <laughs> work can become an idol where you live for your work. I know people in my, my life who lived for their work and when they stopped working, they died. That sounds, that sounds extreme, but that's what happened because they lost their meaning, the purpose in life to get up in the morning. They were driven by their work and the success of their business and that's what gave them their, their buzz. And when they had to retire, they had no plan B. Work was number one. That's where they were hoping to get their happiness and their sense of purpose. And it happens. It happens a lot, actually. If you don't believe me, how often do people say to you, what's your name? What do you do? Or what title do you have? 
That's the world we live in, isn't it? That's where they're getting their sense of meaning, their sense of who they are. Work can become an idol. Codependence can become an idol. By that, what I mean is your spouse or your husband. You can even live your faith through your partner. And when they go, then, then you're, you're lost at sea because you've been living your faith through your, your spouse. Or, or it could be um, your children could become an idol. You remember what Keller says, it's not so much bad things, it's good things that become ultimate things. And, and, and you can live for your children. I've got four children. <laughs> and, and I've had to look at my own heart and, and, and realize that I, I'm making them idols because they're going, and I need to wise up because they're going to grow up <laughs> and they're going to have an attitude of their own and they're going to have an opinion about me and they're going to realize that I'm not God and I'm not perfect. And they're going to leave one day. And they're going to make choices that maybe I, I'm not totally happy about. But in that way, they're letting you know that they're living their lives and it's not your life and you are not to live your life through them, which can also happen, can't it? It can be anything. When I was young, it was football. I supported the best team in the world. I'm not going to tell you what that is. But, but you know, I lived for football. I woke up in the morning. I couldn't wait to get out of school to get to the park to play football. And then, when I was in my teens, I wrecked my knee. And it was like the end of the world for me. What am I going to do when I grow up? I was going to be a professional footballer. I was going to be a George Best. And then I switched to music. Started playing the guitar and started playing the rock band. I'm going to do it this way. And that became the driving force in my life. And then the troubles hit North Belfast. And, 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 and I met Christ. Things began to be put in place. I began to realize that these things. Now later on, that, that could very have easily become my job or my career. Uh, as I worked in research and development in the aircraft industry, it could easily have become my wife or my children. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here. I'm looking at my own heart. And these things can become idols. Your ministry as a Christian, or even as an elder or a praise leader, can become idols. And you only find out when someone comes along and says, would you let somebody else lead the praise this Sunday? I've seen churches split over this. One of my children has been going to a church where it's been all about the praise band. And, and she's beginning to wonder, who are we praising here? Who's on show? Is this a gig? Some of them talk about the gig. One day a young man went to a pastor in Australia, in Western Perth, and he said to the pastor, I didn't enjoy that worship this morning. The pastor said to him, I didn't realize we're worshiping you. <laughs> Why are we here this morning? Very easy to get distracted, isn't it? See how well we dressed we are and how good the music is or isn't, or whether we've sang in tune or whether so-and-so's here and so-and-so's not here. And so We've come here to see Jesus. We've come here to offer our worship to him. I hope you've seen him this morning. Cain missed it for whatever reason. Now, many of these idols that I talk about are, are what Tim Keller calls near idols. But if you dig deep, why has your work become so meaningful to you? Why, why? Is it you're finding your security, which is the deeper meaning? Are you looking for security in your job? Yes. Or it could be your house. Your house can become an idol. Some of my family's houses are like museums. You don't touch a thing in them. 
They're not homes at all, they're museums. And some people come to church and the church becomes like that too. A, a church building can become an idol. There are people that go to cathedrals and all kinds of beautiful churches and have been involved in building churches and investing time and energy and money in churches and the church becomes an idol. I'm talking about the building. You see how seditious it is? You see how easy it is for our hearts to get attached to things? I live in the country. I don't mention cars. <laughs> you know, cars are a big deal where I live. People notice immediately right away what kind of car you're driving, you know, and, and what make it is and how much it costs. And it's, it's, it's a big deal, isn't it, for, for, for many people. These are idols. They can become idols. They're not idols in themselves. But underneath that, it's about where are you getting your security from? Where are you getting comfort from? People who turn to addictions are often looking for comfort. It's something deeper going on. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for rest. They're looking for peace. And they're, and they're looking in the wrong direction. Like the woman who had the issue of blood. Spent money running in every direction until she found Christ. In some cases, it's about control. People who have a disproportionate, how can I put it, way of organizing things. You know, it's about being in control of everything. And in order, you know, and that, could it be that Cain for once in his life was no longer in control of the situation? Up until now, he was running the show on the farm with the business, with the, you know, maybe Cain was calling the shots in every other area of his life. He comes before God and God says, no. What? I've just read a very interesting book called The Big Ego. Yes, it could be because it's about myself. No, it's a man called Glenn Harrison, who's a psychologist who, who wrote this book, a Christian psychologist, a professor in Bristol University. And it's all about self-esteem. Interesting. The history of self-esteem. Where did it come from, this whole business of self-esteem? It has affected education. It has affected governments. It has affected all kinds of situations. Billions of dollars and, 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 and pounds have gone into the business of self-esteem. We are encouraged to build up our children's self-esteem. And his argument in it is, has it, his question is, has it worked? Do we now have a society of very balanced, well-balanced, emotionally balanced uh, people? Or is there an epidemic of opioids, antidepressants, suicides, so on and so forth. He, he, he knows the answer in his mind. And, he, and he's basically arguing the problem with the whole God, and he calls it a God of self-esteem, is that self is at the center of it. It's about self. And in many ways, the only self the Bible talks about is self-control. <laughs> and he's basically making the argument that unless we live lives that are about somebody else, someone bigger and better than us, that we're part of a bigger picture, that you get real meaning in life and happiness and balance and security when you put your trust in somebody bigger than you, something bigger than you. And of course, we know what that is. Maybe Cain hadn't got that far. Cain didn't learn his lessons. He began, he began to wander. 
His punishment was to wander aimlessly. The gods in Cain's life were not given the results that he was hoping. And in fact, it had a knock-on effect with his children and his grandchildren because one of his grandchildren was much worse than he was. He murdered a man and he actually boasted about it. And the children and grandchildren of Abel were also affected by Abel's life. Now let me just, in closing, give you some uh, signposts to other portions of Scripture. And when it comes to idols, if you look at Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul says about the idols he came across in Rome. He says this, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You could say that about Cain. But then it goes on to say this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think upon foolish ideas of what God was like. I want you to get that. They began to think about foolish ideas about what God was like. They made their, their, they made their own image of God or what he should be. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now here's what John, the apostle, says about Cain. In 1 John chapter 3, listen to this. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should, we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. Did you get that? And killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil. Because Cain had been doing what was evil. And his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now that's another angle on Cain, isn't it? That goes further than just the, the, the gift. John is saying this, the problem with Cain's offering was Cain's way of life. And we come every Sunday and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's about him, my friends. And that's a battle in our minds and our hearts, isn't it? To set the worries of the world and the responsibilities of life aside for an hour and focus on him. And I am so glad to be here this morning because the focus has been on him through the songs and the prayers. And, and in every way, we have lifted Christ up this morning. And we can say none but Christ can really satisfy. See, even in an intimate relationship with your husband or your wife, if you're expecting them to satisfy all your needs, if you make them your idol, you will be heartbroken because they're not perfect. You may have noticed. But we expect maybe too much of the other person to meet our deepest needs of security and happiness and identity and all of those things that only Christ and only a relationship with God can truly give us. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us about Abel. We've read about Cain. But in Hebrews 11, it says Cain was a man of faith. God accepted Cain's sacrifice because he lived a life of faith. He was living his life trusting God, not all the other idols that Cain was trusting. 
That's the difference. It's not, worship is not detached to the way that we live. And that's the challenge for all of us, isn't it? That's why Jesus says, let a man examine himself and then participate. Not examine himself and then not participate. The idea is to look at your heart and recognize our weaknesses and look for the idols that may be trying to claim our mind and our hearts and let them go and let God come in and flood our souls with his light and his healing and his reassurance and his promises and so on. He sets us free, doesn't he? from all these things that will disappoint. Here are some ways you can recognize idols in your life. Look for the, how can I I put it? When you blow it, when you get too angry, or you get too sad, look for signs in your emotions when when they go too extreme. Some some would say, or my wife would say sometimes, don't be pushing those buttons. (laughs) You know, those emotional buttons. Maybe that's a wee indication that some things are maybe too, you know, too close to your heart. Motivations, what's driving you? This is a way of recognizing the idols in our lives. But also recognize that they're weak. The message of the prophets in the Old Testament was, these idols are useless. They can't speak and they can't hear and they can't talk and they can't see. And the idols that we make idols of our lives, a car is only a car. It's only a thing. Leave it alone, it does not, can't do anything. It's, it, it, it's me that makes things happen when I get into it. Uh, and that's one of the ways we can look at the idols in our hearts and say, you know, can this really meet our deepest needs? Am I looking in the wrong direction? Recognize their dangers. We read in Romans that the, the, the idols in their lives led them to, to become darkened in their mind and confused. You watch TV, remember that when you're watching Pop Idol or, or The Voice or with all the things that people are now putting their trust in, should it be Liverpool or Man United or whatever it is for guys? Just recognize that idols can lead us to become dark in our minds and confused. You know, one of the lovely things in the scriptures is that as you go through it, you read about other brothers in the New Testament, right in the first chapter of John, there's two brothers and, and Jesus appears on the scene and he makes all the difference. Whereas in the Old Testament, the one brother killed the other brother. In the New Testament, the one brother, he calls the other brother and says, come and meet this guy. Come to Jesus. I'm glad to say the two brothers are the father and the two brothers in Romania. They all know the Lord Jesus and they're all working together in ministry for the Lord Jesus. And I reckon that it's only the Lord Jesus keeps the peace in that house with three families living together in the one house. What's, you know, what's the reaction for us today against all of this? Well, let me, two points in closing. One is repent. Recognize the idols in our lives and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Get rid of that idol like they did with the golden calf. Sometimes you just got to get rid of it and say, this is not worth it. I had a friend and music was his idol. He's a, he, he, he was a concert um, bassoonist. And God said to him, you remember Moses had to put his baton down. You put your bassoon down. He put his bassoon down for three years. Went to Bible college. Now he's a pastor of a church because the bassoon was the idol. He was making a lot of money from it. Played in the Vienna Orchestra. 
And that was, his, that was his ID card everywhere he went. I can play for you at a wedding. I can play for you at this. Yeah. He became known as Yagvan the Bazunist, but he wanted to become Yagvan the Christian, Yagvan the Son of God. We cannot do any better this morning than to be children of God. It's the best card we have. And once you're a child of God, you're in the safest place on planet Earth in this end. Nothing can pluck you out of his hand. And we are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to reign with him, so don't be fighting over land or hedgerows or boundaries. Or... It's all going to be yours one day in Christ when he comes to reign with those that belong to him. So judge your battles. Don't be fighting battles you don't need to fight for something you've already got in Christ. The old, in the, the end of the, the Gospel of John, there's two brothers again. And the, one brother says to Jesus, what's he going to do? And Jesus says to him, you know the story, the resurrection. There's another good reassurance, you know. Don't be worrying too much about certain things that people are obsessed with today because we're going to get new bodies and we're going to get a new eternal life. And, and Jesus says to Peter, don't you be worrying about him, what he's doing. You follow me. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And I want you to get this little expression Jesus used. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He says, have you ever wondered what these are? What do you mean these, Lord? Well, Peter, I mean your wee boats out there. You have a wee fleet of ships for your business. Do you love me more than that? And you've got your wife and your family there. Do you, do you, and then there's your pals. Do you love me more than your pals? That might be a silly question for some of you, but I know people who put their pals above their marriage and above their family and above everything. I, have a, I, I, I had a taxi man used to take me to the airport. He got divorced because he loved Liverpool Football Club more than he loved his wife and his family. And he'll tell you that. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter basically said, Lord, you know. You know my heart. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me as white as snow. Lord, you know my heart. You know I love you. And as I close this morning, I hope you love the Lord Jesus. It's the safest place to be on planet Earth. I hope you worship him. And I'm speaking to myself as I look at these passages from Scripture. And that we walk in humility and love and courage and singleness of mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do at times feel it smarts in our souls as you rebuke us, as you challenge us, as you admonish us, but we know, Lord, that you love us. And we know that the Lord Jesus came outside the camp. He came from heaven all the way to this sinful planet Earth because he loves us. And as we move towards the Christmas celebrations, Lord, help us to remember more than anything, Lord, that you did it because you loved us. And help us to be able to say this morning, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.